Good morning, church. Happy New Year. Uh, as, we, uh, as we begin a new year, uh, yet again, we are spending the month of January to, to set aside uh, our worship services to, to intentionally focus our hearts and our minds and read about what God's Word has to say to us about the importance of prayer, what prayer means uh, to, to us as believers, what, what prayer means to us as a church. And as I began uh, thinking about how to approach this, I, especially looking at this passage, I, I think we actually need to kind of readjust our view of prayer. Because I think some ordeal, maybe people end up not praying because prayer ends up being this huge ordeal. Maybe you've seen that movie, The War Room, one too many times or something. Not saying it's a bad movie, but you end up looking at prayer like it has to be this huge, miraculous event. But instead, prayer is often small moments that build into a larger whole. For example, I want you to think of one of the, the greatest practices of training and equipping ever uh, conceived. And by that I mean the training montage in The Karate Kid. Um, and, I, and I mean Mr. Miyagi and Daniel. I don't mean, you know, I love Jackie Chan and, and Jaden Smith. That the, the remake was okay, but it's not as good. But when when Daniel came to Mr. Miyagi, Mr. Miyagi and, and wanted to learn karate, Mr. Miyagi put him to work with very specific practices of wax on and wax off. I'm, I actually got those backwards. I'm sorry. It's wax on. You have to go this way and wax off. And then there was sand the floor, which was this direction, sand the floor. And then there was, there was paint the house and paint the fence. All right, and so Daniel thought that all of this was just, he was just doing menial chores that actually had no real effort or representation toward what he truly wanted to do, which was learn karate. Uh, and in a fit, he told Mr. Miyagi that he wanted to quit. And then there comes the iconic scene where Miyagi calls him forward and he says, he tells him to, to wax off, and, and, he go, and Mr. Miyagi goes to punch, and Daniel waxes on and, and deflects the punch, and he goes through and shows that all of this, what he thought was menial labor, was actually a small part of his training that fit into a larger whole of what he wanted to accomplish. So the training itself was not the end goal, but it equipped him toward that end goal. And I think often we, we misunderstand prayer because we view prayer so often as the end goal of what we are trying to accomplish instead of seeing that it is a small part of who we are as believers that build toward a larger whole, that the Lord uses prayer to equip His people. In fact, looking at this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, it shows that prayer is actually just a small part of Christian living, but it's part of a whole that ties into every aspect of who the Christian is and what a Christian does. In fact, though it's briefly mentioned, 
the way that it is presented is that prayer should be consistent. In this regard, prayer is almost a, a, a paradox. It's both it's a small aspect, and it's of huge importance. It's small because it's just a small piece and sliver of what the believer does, but it is huge because it directly impacts everything that the Christian does. And so looking at this passage, I believe that I would even argue that Paul is telling us that consistent prayer should be evident in every believer. Consistent prayer should be evident in every believer, and for three reasons. First, it's part of Christian life. It's just what the Christian should be doing. It is part of Christian life. But secondly, it's not only part of the Christian life, but it is part of God's will. So it's part of Christian life. It's part of God's will. But lastly, it is a reminder of God's faithfulness. So our prayer is part of Christian life. It is part of God's will, but our prayer is also a reminder of God's faithfulness. And before I go any further, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank You for the gift of Your Word, that it is not just an ancient text of of wisdom and and catchy phrases, but Lord, Your Word is, is living and active. It impacts the hearts and souls of people today. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would pour out your spirit in this place, that you would speak even through a broken messenger like myself. Lord, work in spite of me to communicate your gospel truth. And remind us of the importance of our prayers as we bring them to you. And we pray all of this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with, with 1 Thessalonians, a lot of the book actually deals with the second coming of Christ because at, at this point, there are a, a lot of believers who have already passed away. And so the church there in Thessalonica uh, was very uh, concerned about what happens to the believers that have already died. And so Paul addresses their concerns But in the closing remarks, he's reminding the the Christian believers there on how they're supposed to live. Don't worry just about the people that have died. Remember about how you are called to live. And he gives them specific details in in four main areas. First, in in, uh, dealing with their relationship with leaders and those in authority over them. Dealing with difficult people. Uh, dealing with their private worship and dealing with their public worship. Those are the four specific areas addressed here. But right in the middle of all of that, right in the middle especially of addressing the private worship of believers, he tells them, pray without ceasing. And it's right in the middle because it is part of the Christian life. I mean, look at the the list of of what Paul says to the Thessalonian believers. He said, in in, uh, verse 12, he says, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Uh, Verse 13, esteem those who are over you. uh, Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Uh, don't let them just sit there, but uh, challenge them to, to work. 
encourage the faint-hearted, give support to the weak, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Don't focus on revenge, but focus on goodness and kindness. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus in you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. It's, it's a, a list of when people think about how the, the, the Thessalonian believers, who they are as people, what characterizes them, he wants this to be their, their descriptions. In fact, it's not just a list of what Christians should look like, but it's, it's taking the fruit of the Spirit and putting it to action. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's taking those fruit and putting them into action verbs. To love the brothers. Rejoice always. Uh, to, to be at peace with difficult people. To be patient with them. Show kindness to others. Instead of evil, show gentleness. Be faithful to the Spirit and His work. Be characterized by goodness and exhibit self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit, and as action verbs, these are supposed to describe a Christian's lifestyle, not just in the church then, but for believers today. And right at the heart of of the commands for personal worship, pray without ceasing. Not in the sense that your life, for the, for the rest of your life, from the moment you become a believer until the day that you die, should just be one long, consistent prayer that never ends, but that you pray always, pray often, pray consistently, that your life is characterized by consistent prayer. I remember back in the summer of uh, 2000, I was doing summer missions in Chattanooga with a group called YouthWorks. And every, every week we would have a group of middle schoolers come in and we'd plug them into uh, different local ministries and stuff. But that's what I was doing that summer. But there was this one person that I was serving with that his interpretation of this passage he put it into effect in his life in the fact that he would never actually close his prayers. Like, he would never say the word amen because if he never closes his prayers, then he's always in prayer in his mind. And he would often try, when he would go to, to sleep at night, that he would just pray and pray and pray until he would fall asleep praying. That, this was how he would take this pray without ceasing and try to apply it and put it into effect that he was always trying to be in conversation with God. And I disagree with some of the nuance of how he applied that, but I appreciate his sentiment that he wanted everything that he said and did to be part of his lifestyle of prayer. But to pray without ceasing means that prayer is involved in every aspect of a believer's Life. If you look back over the list, these are not characteristics that come naturally to people. To respect uh, those in authority, uh, to, to esteem people in authority 
very highly with love because they're over you, uh, to, to challenge the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient with all people. These are not things that come naturally to the human heart. And prayer is necessary to faithfully fulfill this list that Paul gives the church. But when do you actually pray? Not you as in a hypothetical sense, but, but you as in you, in your own life. When do you pray? If you pray in times like this, if you pray at all times, that is absolutely wonderful. But I think the tendency of the human heart is that most often prayer comes to us most readily when we need something. Not just that you want something physical that you're, that you're lacking, but prayer seems to come in, in times of, of emotional help or times of crisis that a prayer is sent up kind of like we used to call it in youth ministry a flare prayer. That it was uh, like a 911 distress call, like, God, everything that I've done has fallen apart and I need you to show up now. I've exhausted my options. You're my last resort. And far too often, I think that's how we approach prayer, that we do everything we can in our own strength and God himself is our last resort instead of prayer being our first option to seek Him in strength in all that we do. In fact, if you look at Matthew 6, when Christ is teaching about prayer, prayer is not an optional item. Prayer is a sense of necessity because when He's teaching about prayer, when the disciples ask Him how to pray, He doesn't say, well, if you pray, do these things. He doesn't say if. He says when. The Son of God Himself, when He's teaching about prayer, says, when you pray. Meaning that prayer is something that the believer is naturally supposed to be doing. It's not an if, it is a when. Specifically, He tells them, do not pray like the hypocrites, do not pray like the Gentiles, do not show off your prayers as a way to flaunt your spirituality that you think that you're making yourself look more holy and righteous. Do not ramble on in your prayers showing off all of your fancy church words trying to impress people. But he teaches what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer because it is a prayer that touches every aspect of life. Our dependency on Him, on our Father, and His care for us as His children, and His provision, and His protection. And so, Christian, I encourage you to pray often. Pray often because it is a healthy part of Christian living, but it is also part of God's will. If you specifically look at the part where it's talking about personal worship in verses 16 through 18, going back to 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God's will for you is not to get married to the perfect spouse 
Students, God's will for you is not to get older and go to the perfect college. God's will for you is not to find the perfect job. He has all of those things under his control, but that is not his will for you. God's will is not that Two Rivers one day gets uh, its own building or even that becomes a, a prominent name in this community. Those are important, but that is not his will. God's will for you is to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances. Not your career, not your personal life or the the missions of the church, but God's will for you is a heart of worship. In fact, regarding missions, John Piper has said to the effect that missions exists because worship does not. Not that there's a lack of of worship in itself because we have our our songs and our, our, our times of worship, but if people we're authentically worshiping in reflection of what God has done. If your heart truly worshiped in awe of what Christ has done for you, then missions would not need to exist because your life itself would be on mission. If we truly viewed the depth of what God has done and is doing, we would not be able to contain the joy and the prayer and the thankfulness that would overflow from our hearts. Remember, the God of Scripture is not some some quiet deity. He's not a, a, a moral philosophy or behavior modification. But the God of Scripture is the Creator who made Himself known. He's the lawgiver who rules over His people. He is both judge and Redeemer, and He is at work in your very soul. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul reminds the church there in Philippi, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God is working in you as His people to refine you, to mold you for His kingdom work. It's not an overnight thing, but it is a lifelong process. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I think that's one of the most encouraging verses for the believer toward our growth in sanctification. Because if you're anything like me, you see the sin in your own heart and you recognize the darkness that is still in you. And, and I myself look at myself and feel, I am such a failure. Because I've been a Christian for, for so long, but I still struggle with my sin. But then I stop and read that this verse reminds me that the believer that I am today is not the believer that I was a year ago or five years ago or when I first became a believer. That the Lord has been working in me to redeem and transform me from one degree of glory to another. And he will continue to work in you 
until Christ comes again and he restores all that is broken. You are a work in progress. You are unfinished. But hopefully you are one degree further today than you were yesterday. The living God is at work in his people so that you may rejoice always, so that you may pray without ceasing, so that you may give thanks in all circumstances. And so, Christian, I encourage you to pray often because it is part of God's will for you that he uses to redeem you and to refine you for his work. But lastly, it is also a reminder of God's faithfulness. It would be easy to look at this passage and respond in one of two ways. You could look at it and feel overwhelmed at this list of things that that Paul is challenging the church to be and say, I can't do that. And to that I would reply, you're right. In your own strength, you cannot. You are not able to do that and to keep it up. Or you could look at this list and feel like the church itself is a works mentality salvation. That you look at this list of things that you have to do and maybe even think, you know what, I can earn this. I can do this. I've got this. And both of those are wrong places to land. But that's the natural tendency of the human heart. Almost that, that fight or flight response. But Paul says, or Paul knows the weakness and the frailty of the human heart, and he reminds the Thessalonian church of where their strength comes from. Look at the last two verses uh, that we read in this passage, verses 23 and 24. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That the God of peace himself is the one at work. He is the one in action here. That our Christian lifestyle, the way that you live your life, is in response to the action that he has done. Your action is not to earn his favor. It is in response to his favor. He is the one sanctifying you. He is the one keeping you. He is the faithful one, and he will surely do it. The hope for the Thessalonian believers is not in themselves, but in God. And it is the same for you today. Do not place your hope in your own efforts or abilities or accomplishments, but in the one who gives you the strength to do them. You could read your Bible every day. You could join a small group. You could serve in, a, in, in a, some form of ministry here. You could go on a mission trip, but your hope is not in the things that you do, but in the one sanctifying you and the one keeping you. The one who gave the law and consistently throughout the Old Testament redeemed his people. The one who sent his own son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, 
to keep the law when you could not. The one who gave his life as payment for your sin, who gave you his righteousness to bring you into his heavenly family. Jesus Christ is why we can rejoice always and pray without ceasing and give thanks in every circumstance. Because we are not acting in our own strength, but we are resting in his action and his ability and his victory. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. When you pray, it should be a reminder that you are not working to earn God's favor, but you are able to, to boldly approach the throne because of what Christ has done and is doing on your behalf. Because of his victory and his righteousness, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father right now praying for you. His victory and His righteousness have already been applied to you. And you now are declared a holy child of the living God. So Christian, I ask you, when do you pray? Do you pray when you need something? When you've exhausted every option and you feel like you're at the end of your own strength and you have no resources left? That your prayer becomes a spiritual 911 call to either meet your physical needs or some source of help that you need in life? Or do you pray without ceasing? Do you pray consistently and pray often? Do you see this as a, as a healthy part of Christian living? Do you see this as part of God's will for you? And do, you do your prayers remind you of God's faithfulness, of the work of Jesus Christ that have been done on your behalf? Christian, when will you pray? Let us pray right now. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we confess that far too often we rest in our own efforts and abilities and that our prayers are lacking because we try to find the strength in ourselves. God, we confess our pride and our weakness. And we confess that we are in desperate need of you. Remind us of the victory applied to us through the work of Jesus Christ. Remind us that he has already won. That he has defeated death and sin and that we can rest in his victory, that we can approach the throne in prayer because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so, Lord, let us pray often. Let us pray consistently. Let us pray without ceasing because we rest in the victory of Jesus Christ alone. 
And it's in his holy and wonderful name we pray. Amen.